Welcome to another day of Lost in Twin Peaks. Today we're talking about the subplots, going scene by scene through all of the storylines that are not centered around Laura Palmer. We have the Packard family life. Catherine and Pete are going to bed. She's trying to ask him about why uh, the FBI agent was there. And uh, he's shining his shoes and she starts yelling at him, get your boots and get out of my room or go to your room. So they're not sleeping together. So it's kind of funny that they're like, we see them in this moment, like the wife, husband and wife going to bed. And then it turns out, no, not really. So Lynch kind of has fun with that. We don't get anything about the Briggs family life this episode. For the Horn family life, we have their awkward dinner that's interrupted by Jerry. This is just a very icy family towards each other. You know, there's got Johnny grunting in the corner, Sylvia sort of scowling. Ben blithely in his own kind of uh, mindset, you know, like he's just there and, and Audrey contemplating it all, I guess. But this is not a family that gets along. This is also, once Jerry arrives, the first sign we've seen of like an exaggerated, ridiculous Ben. He's very floored in episode one with the kind of the dialogue and the this and the gestures and everything. But he's less like zany. Like he's genuinely kind of hilarious i think we start to almost kind of like like him in spite of ourselves in this episode as compared to some of the previous ones because he's got a certain charisma to him Uh, i love the way he delivers lines with jerry in particular uh speaking of which let's move on to the ghostwood packard sawmill plot uh jerry discovers the norwegian deal is off and uh i love ben's delivery of the line where, you know, Jerry's like, we had those Vikings by the horns, what happened? Uh, which itself sounds like a very frosty in line. And uh, Ben just says, we don't know, they took the translators with them, which is just kind of this deadpan response. There's a beautiful, absurdist comic timing to the sequence as he's chewing the food, pausing, leans in, says something, thinks about something, like it's just so perfectly executed. I also like the juxtaposition of these two sleazy businessmen in front of this big mural of these like larger than life iconic but kind of mute workers working along a river. Somebody somewhere pointed that out. I don't know. I remember whether it was a podcast or an essay talking about that contrast. Uh, and and I, I just I, I like that effect, especially as we dissolve from these workers hard at work on the river to like these two scoundrels you know, jetting along to their leisure spot, their exploitative leisure spot somewhere along that river. It's just a nice contrast there. Later on, we get more about this plot, uh, more the Packard Mill side than the Ghostwood side, as we see uh, Pete opening the door a crack while, while Catherine's talking to him from the other room, and Josie's standing in the doorway, and he whispers to her, here's the key, you know, go to the go to the secret spot and whatever. And Josie goes to this bookcase, and she opens up, she pulls it back and she's able to open up a safe and find two ledgers inside, which gets her kind of worried, you know, like uh, something's going on behind her back involving the mill that she supposedly owns. For Shelly, Bobby, and Leo plotline, we get Leo while he's meeting Mike and Bobby out in the woods to talk about drugs and money. He says, you want to talk about problems, I'll tell you a problem, you know. My wife, my, uh, I can't remember the exact line of dialogue, but basically, you know, my old lady's been running out on me. Bobby gets really nervous at this. He keeps going, well, who, who, who's, who's she having an affair with? Do you know? Do you know? He keeps asking Leo, and, and Leo, you know, uh, just says, I'll find out. So 
It's like he doesn't know yet, but he knows something's up, or maybe he does know, and he's just tormenting Bobby. Not entirely clear, but Bobby's scared as hell. This is probably the most sympathetic that Bobby has ever been for us in the audience. He's been such an asshole for a couple episodes, and uh, maybe the moment where he finds out that Laura has been murdered, uh, maybe his scene with Shelly before that, you know, where he's riding from the diner, he's kind of likable in a roguish way or whatever, but pretty much since he's been arrested, he's just come off as this big jerk and uh, always angry all the time. And here it's like you're seeing the scared Bobby. We get we get to garner a little sympathy for him, I think. Later on, Bobby goes and he visits Shelly again. This is the first time we've seen them together since the pilot, since before Laura died, and she's bruised. He sees that she's been beaten, and uh, he's he says, you know, he'll he'll never let Leo hurt her again. Uh, she's standing, sitting there watching a soap opera. Comes on, says, "Welcome to Invitation to Love," and she says, "Yeah, right." Like she's got no time for this silly romance with her life going the way it is. And then Bobby comes in, and and she's saying she can't see him now. He comes in anyways, and he's trying to comfort her. And she's like, "He'll kill us both." So we're getting a real sense of the stakes in the scene. It's also a very soap operatic scene, which makes an ironic contrast with her shutting the soap opera off before. But I think she's mostly just not having the title of it, Invitation to Love, you know, because that's not where she's seeing her life right now. In the James and Donna storyline, we have Doc Hayward and Mrs. Hayward saying goodnight to James and Donna. They're all sitting around the table in the living room. And uh, I've heard this scene described by, it was definitely a podcast, and I can't remember which one, but they were like, did Lynch really shoot this scene? Because it seems kind of flat and odd and awkward in a way the rest of the episode doesn't. But to me, this reads as a very, very Lynchian scene. First of all, it's all wide shot, one long take of the whole family standing around there. And the the like moments of pauses and silence are just very awkward. And there's an underlying logic to it, too, because I don't think they're thrilled with this guy being there with her daughter, their daughter alone in the living room as they go to bed. But they're also sort of too taciturn and sort of, uh, you know, again, that sort of like waspy um, all-American kind of family. They're not comfortable just saying, you know, you got to go now, young man. So they, they're almost like hinting to him, well, we're going to bed now. And James is sort of clueless. She's like, yeah, all right, cool. You're going to bed. And they're like, yep, we're going to bed. You guys all right down here? You want us to take the plates? Oh, no, 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 that's fine. Leave the plates. Okay. Uh, we're going to church in the morning, James. You're welcome to come with us, James. Like, it's just like they're trying to hint at him and uh, he's kind of not getting the picture. I think Donna probably is and doesn't want to indulge it. But James, I think, is genuinely sort of clueless. So I, I kind of like this scene. I get a kick out of it. And then we get them discussing their love. It's it's very blue velvety. This is that sort of teen angst and love uh, romance that, that Lynch loves. And he takes... I mean, he knows the cornball aspect of it, but he, he's he's very invested in it, too. Like, he, he loves that type of stuff. I also like how we get this cut in the sequencing in the episode of how Jer Ben and Jerry are riding down the river at night, and then we cut from that water to the fireplace at the Haywards, where James and Donna are. And uh, ironically, of course, we think of fire as being more dangerous than water, but it's the second location that's ironically safer than, than the first one. So the fire is safer than the water in this context. It also reflects the fade up and down we get from the river in the credits, where the credits are going over the flowing river, to the fireplace in the Horns dining room as they're eating. So there's that's a constant interplay in this episode. For the Nadine Drape Runners storyline, Ed uh, opens up his door. He's sort of 
slowly walking through the house trying not to disturb anything. He's got his coveralls on and the grease dripping all down his hands. So something went wrong at the mechanic shop down the street where he works. As he's walking through, Nadine is on her exercise machine, pulling back and forth very dramatically. And he's crunches right onto her drape runner and the grease drips onto the cotton balls and she starts screaming at him and he tries to apologize you make me sick she yells and so he kind of just you know hangs his head and sneaks out and she starts yanking harder and harder at these uh at the rowing machine until she bends the metal back just this funny very lynchian gesture to express her inhuman rage at this moment it's like you know frank booth shouting or uh the elephant man's boss beating him or whatever but in this case in a very purely comical context just this this impotent rage <laughs> uh and then in the diner Anne and norma discuss nadine's uh uh, drapes and uh you know the, the, ed says i'm in that doghouse again i popped a greasy gun i stepped on a drape runner and all hell broke loose and norma mentions her encounter with nadine in the hardware store that we saw in the previous episode and uh, ed says you know this this whole drape runner obsession of hers creating the silent drape runner it's one big b in her bonnet Later in the day, Ed returns home. He kind of sneaks in, hoping she doesn't hear anything. He hears an 18 shout, and he goes, oh, God. But she runs up to embrace him, and she's squeezing him. And we're not sure if this is better or worse than what he was expecting. And she thanks him, runs over to the curtains, and starts pulling the strings back and forth, completely silent. The grease, I guess, silent uh, was the missing ingredient she needed. So it's just this kind of lovable, like, Lynch and Frost, they want another storyline. They want to do something with this character who's who they just cracks them up. They love her. And what can they do? Well, she was playing with drapes in the pilot. Let's make that her thing. And here they are really, really going for it, episode to episode. It sounds like it's Lynch saying goodnight, Ed, at the beginning of this scene. We see the, see the lights go out at, at Big Ed's gas farm. And, uh, you know, he does that from time to time. Inland Empire, there's a hilarious routine where he's like an off-screen voice. So I'm pretty sure that's him. And this is 34 minutes into the episode. We've gone back to the nighttime which was 17 minutes. The first half of the episode was all night, and then it was day, and now it's night again. So well more than half of this episode takes place at night. So the Teresa Banks storyline, this is the second episode of Nothing. So we've let that sit dormant now for a little while. This is the other, I probably even need to mention it to remind new viewers who, who I'm talking about, this is the other woman who was killed across the state by apparently the same killer. And that seemed like a really big deal in the pilot, but we're not hearing anything about it now. For Mike and Donna, we don't get anything in this episode. None of their little, uh, their romance seems to be pretty much over at this point. For Ed and Norma, they're discussing Nadine's drapes in the diner, but really it's all more about the subtext of them being in love. And her gesture, she kind of touches his band, his bandage on his, his forehead, mentions that Bobby hit him. Uh, that hasn't really been established as an ongoing storyline, but it does keep getting referenced. Here, it's just more of an excuse for her to touch him and for them to have this kind of moment together. And that's nice. Lynch really gets to evoke their, their love for each other here. I just love how, like, Norma is kind of smiling to herself, leaning up against the thing, even before he comes in. They comes in, and he lifts his hand and smiles, and it's just like a warmth to it that's really nice. There's nothing flashy about the scene, but it's all one shot from beginning to end. Every episode now has had at least one scene that unfolds in a single take. Bobby's questioning in the pilot, Audrey's fight with Ben in the previous episode, and now this one. All one take from the beginning that we cut to this location to the end where we cut away. And that's pretty cool. Like, that's uh, 
kind of a motif now. I'll, I'm going to start looking for that each episode and see if there's any scene. It's got to be the whole scene. It can't be like a long take for a minute or more that then cuts to something else in the scene because there's even some of that in this episode, but really like one whole long scene beginning to end in a single take. And Lynch would do this sometimes not just because he liked the aesthetic of it, but as a, a cost-saving measure because he would spend a lot more time on certain scenes than people thought he should and the crew is like we're gonna run over schedule we're gonna run over and then he'd be like let's just take the whole next scene in one take set the camera here you stand here come in this way so that you'll be on camera the whole time we'll move it a little to catch this for hank in prison second episode of nothing so this is norma's husband who's supposedly coming up for uh parole but we haven't heard anything about it since the since she mentioned it in the roadhouse in the pilot so he hasn't come up for parole yet. For Josie and Harry, we get nothing in this episode. And for Bobby Killed a Guy, this is, the, again, the second episode of nothing. So there's a few storylines that are kind of lying dormant. We don't know when or if they'll come up again. And we do have to keep in mind, you know, as much as these guys like to come back and touch on every base, they're also writing a very complicated show and introducing new elements all the time. So we may have to expect that some of these things are just going to slip away, but we kind of hope they won't because they're such interesting threads often. And that's a big deal. You know, Bobby killing somebody seems like something we should return to. Uh, for the storylines introduced in the previous episode, we have Cooper and Audrey's flirtation. Uh, Audrey and Cooper don't have a scene again together, but Audrey definitely brings this up when she's talking with Donna. They kind of giggle together about Cooper. It's a great little moment and talking about how he loves coffee and Agent Cooper and just like the way she talks about him. And it seems to kind of motivate her dance in a way like she's in love. She's just going to get out there and dance. Uh, great little moment so i don't think i really properly set up this scene talking about it uh, this is the scene where the haywards are sitting in the diner eating and oh look it's it's audrey horn we saw her after church and audrey comes in turns on the jukebox sits at the counter and orders some coffee from norma and donna's curious so she goes over to sit next to her they talk about all the stuff we talked about them talking about but it's a sort of interesting chemistry between them. It's just, I really like the chemistry these two characters have together, uh, which is interesting because we'll get into it more at a later date. The actresses did not get along, these two actresses, and it had interesting consequences down the line. That's a cool little scene. And of course, it ends with Audrey just saying, isn't this, uh, this music, I love it, isn't it too dreamy? And standing up and just dancing for a little while, we just kind of stay on her and Donna's looking and the Haywards are looking like, what's going on with her? And she's just kind of swaying back and forth and the camera's at a high angle. And it's just a great, great, great Twin Peaks moment. One of the all-timers. And to be fair, this is building off of something that happened in the previous episode where she's dancing and Ben comes in. So credit where due. Dwayne Dunham established that nicely. That's in a script written by Lynch and Frost. So that was on the page. Audrey was not supposed to dance in this episode. Lynch, I think, loved how it came off in that earlier episode. He probably saw the dailies or even the finished cut because at this point, remember, this is quite a ways later in production when he's shooting this episode. And he was just like, we got to get her dancing again. So he scrapped the whole scene as written, which was like Donna and Audrey meeting outside. It's not that good of a scene. They just meet outside a church and she's like, hey, Audrey, what are you doing here? I felt bad about Laura. And she kind of says the stuff that they say at the counter. And she, Donna's like, hmm, well why don't you come to, to lunch with us? Let's go to lunch together with my family and that'll make you feel happy. And they go off. It's kind of like a odd, happy little scene. So he took those elements and refused them into this scene at the diner uh, the night before they were going to shoot it. 
And Sherilyn Fenn was really nervous. He's just like, here's what you're going to do. And almost like got her in this mesmerized mood. And she made up the dance that she does. It's such a great scene. It's like in some way, I mean, the Red Room's obviously favorite scene. And the bottle throwing is such a classic. But this is like up there for like favorite scene of the episode for me. I really, really enjoy it. Other uh, plot lines introduced, subplots introduced in episode one that continue here. The cocaine and Twin Peaks as a criminal activity. We see Mike and Bobby in their car. They're about to go out into the woods, and Bob, Mike shows Bobby a knife. He's like, I'm ready. He's got a switchblade. And uh, what are they going to do with that switchblade? Well, it turns out they're actually just going to cut open a football and look inside for the money, I guess. He's certainly not going to be much of a threat to Leo with it. Uh, Leo pops up there. I don't. It's like they're not expecting him or something. I, I don't know if they were trying to sneak one by him and get the money back or what, but he's waiting there with a shotgun and his flashlight, and he just intimidates the hell out of them. And then their conversation ends. He says, go out for a pass. Goes, what? He pulls the shotgun on them. Go out for a pass. They run out. Leo throws the football in the air, goes flying, flying. They run, 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 run. They get to their car and it lands on the car, which timing-wise is not very realistic, I think. Or he just, maybe he just waited for them to be almost there before he threw it. Lands on the car and Mike says, God damn it, Bobby, I'm done. I'm done with this job. So there's a real sense now that their their little foray into drug dealing, at least Mike's aspect, is, is over with. He's not going to do this anymore. Which leads us to wonder, he's not uh, with Donna anymore. He's saying he doesn't want to partake in the drug business. So Mike was a pretty big character in the pilot, and uh, he's been present in all the episodes since. So what are they going to find for him to do if he is uh, not part of this drug dealing uh, context and uh, how, how soon will they find it for him to do? So we'll see soon, I'm sure. Uh, for the stakeout at the roadhouse, we don't see anything more on that subplot and the bookhouse boys, nothing there. No, no, uh, no, no sign of what they were talking about when I think uh, Ed referenced that or Harry on the previous episode, maybe a job for the Bookhouse Boys. And uh, the one-armed man storyline, well, we got a few things on that. First of all, Cooper hears from Hawk that he you know, encountered this one-armed man. Keep an eye on him, look into him. They're going to try to figure out who this guy is. It's not quite clear why they're that interested in him. Just Hawk saw something that interested him. And, of course, Cooper remembers seeing him in the hospital and they know he went into the morgue where he wasn't supposed to go, so I guess that's a criminal thing. It seems like it would be more for the hospital staff to deal with. Not clear at all, but of course, later in the dream, that one-armed man is right there, uh, very present in Cooper's mind. So there's something that is just leading him towards that figure. And uh, according to the dream, the one-armed man's name is Mike. Now again, this is a dream, so how true is it? We don't know yet. And surprisingly, there are no standalone character scenes that I can think of in this episode. Everything ties into some larger subplot or Lara storyline. There are some new storylines in this episode introduced. The big one is uh, One-Eyed Jacks. It's sort of a stretch to call it a storyline because we don't know where... There's no plot set in motion at all at this point. We just know the location exists and that it's been brought to Cooper's attention. I guess the plot line is the idea, very offhand mentioned briefly in one line, that there's a perfume, there's a connection to the perfume counter because this new girl is freshly scented from the perfume counter. So we see Ben, when they're talking about the Norwegians and Laura... Uh, ben says he's got a way that he can make Jerry feel less depressed. There's a new girl at One-Eyed Jack's, and you, Brother Jer, have a 50-50 chance of being first in line. I like those odds, he says. All work and no play make Ben and Jerry dull boys. They go off on their boat to One-Eyed Jack's. They arrive, they're greeted by this 
character, I think she's listed as Swabby in the uh, credits. This girl with a sailor cap saluting them, welcoming them on shore. Another girl is just posing next to, like, this is all so wild at heart. This girl posing in her big sort of fur uh, or, or cloak or whatever, standing next to the neon sign that's out in the middle of these Canadian woods with the blinking one-eyed Jack uh, from the from the cards. Just a great milieu. And they go inside, and there's a bartender. Before they even arrive, the bartender gets the notification. She calls Blackie and says, the Horn brothers have arrived. Very serious business, sort of like, okay, we got to humor these clients now, you know, be, be on your best behavior. It's not like a, oh boy, the Horns are here. Can't wait to see them. But of course, they have to put on this cheerful persona when they do arrive. So there's a question of like what the relationship between all these people here is. You know, they're in a business, they're servicing these clients. The clients are certainly happy to be there. Are they? We don't really know. So Ben and Jerry come in and Jerry's kind of mocking to the the bartender and she kind of smiles and plays along. And then Blackie comes out. Well, first the girls all come out. They line up in this sort of phalanx and Blackie comes out of the hallway. Commentators noted a very vaginal quality to the scene. They're sort of playing with this uh, quasi-pornographic imagery in the sequence in a very sort of TV-appropriate way. But uh, Ben starts reciting Shakespeare to Blackie. I think it's a Midsummer. No, it's a sonnet. And, you know, I'm not claiming I'm a great Shakespeare expert. I know that because of researching the Twin Peaks, that that's what he's referencing. The new girl comes out. Jerry's wants first at her. They flip the coin and Jerry loses. So Ben gets to go to bed with the new girl, and he's approaching her, and it's this very predatory kind of motion. So, like, Lynch is playing this off, and like, hey, look at these, like, erotic, this erotic place out in the woods for this, like, kind of hip 1990 TV audience, but he's also creating room for the subjectivity, particularly of this girl. Like, we see her kind of gulp and look awkward and, and kind of readjust her position and then take Ben's hands and lead him back there. And the Twin Peaks Rewatch podcast, they have a great little segment talking about this, her reaction and what it's like for her in this situation, this wealthy, narcissistic man walking up and she's now it's her job to kind of be his like his toy and they go back there and it's it's very unsettling in that sense in the great northern cooper receives a note slipped under his door there's a knock and a note and he can't see who's there and the note just he opens up the envelope and the note says jack with one eye and he smells it and it's like is there a hint of perfume from the counter no, no, somebody wanted him to see this, Jack with one eye. So later, as he's throwing the rocks at the bottle, Lucy starts talking about the Jack with one eye. Maybe it's the letter eye, but Jack doesn't have an eye, and Cooper's like, no, I, I think it's a person who only has one eye. But actually, they're both wrong, because uh, Ed, um, uh, Hawk says, oh, gee, maybe it's Nadine. Sounds like Nadine, Big Ed's wife. He's got one eye. And uh, Harry says, no, no, there's a casino up north called One-Eyed Jacks across the border on the Canadian side. So Cooper says, okay, we got to check that place out. So something's being set in motion here. We've met One-Eyed Jacks, Blackie. We know Ben's connection to it. We know the perfume counter connection. We know that somebody wants Cooper to know about it. And we know that Cooper now knows what it is. So that's quite a lot on that in the scene. I think it's fair to say, if anything is kind of like, you know, besides the dream sequence is like introduced in this episode, it's it's One-Eyed Jacks. Finally, I guess you could call this a new subplot. We haven't seen much with it yet, but there's a soap opera that Shelley's watching. It's called Invitation to Love, and uh, she shuts it off before we can hear much more, but it looks intriguing. 
Okay, uh, that wasn't finally, actually. I have one more postscript to add as far as subplots go. I do want to put a pin in Albert versus Harry in Twin Peaks, the confrontation he kind of has over what he thinks of the town and the sheriff. Uh, even though, as I mentioned in the Lars murder story, it's very much folded within that, there's enough of a strain there that I think, um, you know, let's put a pin on it and see where that goes. Here in this episode, we have the uncanny basically hitting the jackpot. Up until now, let's review what we've seen. We've seen Sarah uh, having like kind of what seems like a psychic moment where she pops up and starts screaming because there's a hand in the woods reaching into the dirt. And then the next episode, Sarah again, sh shouting and screaming as she uh, embraces Donna. First, she sees Laura's face kind of hovering over Donna's face. And then she sees what we now know is Bob crouching in a vision. This episode, though, before we even get to the Red Room, we have the one-armed man that that Hawk saw at the hospital telling Cooper about that. That's only uncanny in retrospect because of the Red Room, but we also have the Tibet method. Cooper's talking about how this came in a dream, and even at one point during the bottle throwing, uh, Harry takes him aside and is like, so you tell me this really came to you in a dream? And Cooper's just yes, isn't it great? Like, loves it, grinning ear to ear. And Harry's like, okay, let's keep rolling with this. You know, I love the way they play along. They all lean forward in their chairs as he says, we're going to talk about Tibet and turns over the blackboard and reveals a giant map of Tibet in the middle of this, like, little forest glen. So there's that. But really, of course, when we're talking about the uncanny, in Twin Peaks in general, begins with this dream sequence. So we're seeing these flashes of this this stuff and then, Cooper going to this other place. First, he sees Mike standing there reciting his poem and talking. Then it fades to Bob uh, saying, you know, he, he will kill again. And I think he's listed in the credits as Killer Bob. So there's, you know, making no bones about the fact that at least in Cooper's dream world, this guy is a killer. And then we go to the Red Room. We have this interesting location where it's like, there's no ceiling that we can see. There's just these long red drapes. And when we cut out to a wide shot, they're going really high. And these chairs, kind of interestingly furnished with these two chairs, uh, three chairs kind of sitting there. And uh, there's like a small Saturn lamp on a table next to Cooper. And then there's like a, a statue. It's the Venus de Medici, where... Venus is rising from the waves. I don't think we can see that part of the statue. There's sort of a dolphin at her feet, and she's covering her breasts and her, her genitals. So it's like uh, it's sort of an interesting image and makes an interesting contrast to the Venus de Milo, which is probably more famous, where the arms are actually cut off. There are no arms, so she's sort of unprotected in that way. And that's an interesting thought. You can make of that what you will. There's a really interesting thread I'll link it with caution below. For patrons, probably won't be an issue because I'm sure you're all familiar. But when this is a public podcast for new viewers, this talks a lot about um, it talks about how the statue is used in this episode in light of you know later episodes. So it's got spoilers, basically, is what I'm saying. So proceed with caution. Venus de Medici there. So there's like these sort of classical references in a way. And I love how in the sequence, we're kind of stepping outside of the world that Lynch has cultivated for Twin Peaks, where it's a little more enclosed. The worldliness that's there seems like it comes more from Frost, his interest in history and things like that. Although apparently it was Lynch who suggested 
bringing Tibet into it because he went and saw the Dalai Lama in like 1989. It was like, we got to write a scene about Tibet. I really want to put this in our show, Mark. And so Frost like wrote the scene basically. Here we're like reaching back to something more primal in a way. It reminds me of uh, like this, this dream that Jung once described where he's in a house and each floor he goes to is like a different... Um, I think I descri- I think I've read this whole passage back in I don't think it was on my main podcast. I think it was on the Twin Peaks one. I think I read it back in like the pilot episode. It's this whole eerie thing where like you're going to different levels of the mind that reflect different levels of like human history. And as you go back it's like sort of touching something more more primal as it goes back to like Roman aqueducts and like a cave with a skull in it and things like that. And there's something about that with this scene where it's like, we're reaching back further than the universe and and farther. Like it's not just further back in time, but further out into space. There's just like a more, we're going beyond here and it's wild and people love it for that. And that's one of the things, it's not just the strange things that happen in this space. It's the space itself that really caught viewers attention and made their heads kind of spin is like, this is part of this universe and it helps that Twin Peaks is such an enclosed place. Up till now, we've only been in the town and a little bit over the Canadian border. And that's it, you know. We end this episode on the little man dancing with the credits rolling over him. And other podcasts have pointed out how it feels almost like a little too much. Like they're having a little too much kind of fun with this, like a sitcom lingering on a goofy joke over the end credits. We're really out of the show's universe at this point when we're seeing that. It's also the first credit sequence, the first ending credits that doesn't feature Laura's portrait under. Like that was established in the pilot in the following episode as the way the show ends. But Lynch doesn't do that here. Thanks for listening. If you want to support this podcast, you can rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. You can also become a patron on patreon.com slash lostinthemovies. See you tomorrow for another historical context episode where we look at things going on on TV that night, in the media around that time, in the news, and uh, situate Twin Peaks in that context. <laughs> <laughs>